This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Gopinath Chandran and Richard Monkowskis, who both just made one-time contributions to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 437 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guests today are Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, creators of the terrific indie sci-fi films Resolution, Spring, and The Endless, which we reviewed back in episode 339. And we'll be speaking with them today about their new time travel movie, Synchronic, starring Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan. And now here's our interview with Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. All right, so we're here with Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Welcome to the show. Oh, man, glad to be here. This is great. Yeah, thank you for having us. Okay, so back in episode 339, we reviewed your first three movies, so I want to pick up your story from there. So just what have you been working on since The Endless? Oh, wow, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, let's see, we've, um, we've done some very elaborate pitches for very big movies we're not supposed to talk about. Yeah. We didn't get the job, didn't get the job. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, we made uh, Synchronic, which is coming out pretty soon. Yeah. Um, we did direct an episode of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone, uh, which is actually really cool about a uh, an Antarctic station that gets a, a, a hyper intelligent octopus on the loose. Yeah, we've been in pre production uh, on a, a a film project that we're doing for the next month. We've been pre production for the last couple months on that. Yeah, today's our last day of well, our last business day of pre production. We go to camera on Monday. Um, yeah, busy. Wow. So how did the, um, did the endless open up a lot of those opportunities for you? Like how did the twilight zone and that kind of stuff come about? It's hard to say. Cause I feel like we got twilight zone because of, sp- no, we thought we got it because of spring because it was tentacles. Right. right, right. <laughs> but, but it's weird because like in this day and age where, you know, um, uh, how do I say this? I don't want to say this without being like, our movies are so awesome. I just say, there's a lot of really good movies that get released on VOD these days. And those movies have such a different life where it's like, you'll get a job based off a movie that we oh, released yeah. in 2012. Like, oh, Resolution yeah. will get us jobs because there's never a big marketing push to begin with. Though these, these, these films that get discovered and over enough time, they get discovered by the right people and lead to some kind of opportunity typically. Yeah, it's, it's really bizarre because you get really excited for the release of your new movie. And and it's hard to temper that excitement against the fact that it's actually not going to enter the zeitgeist uh, of any form. It doesn't even have a chance to enter the zeitgeist unt- uh, for a few years. You know, it's got to live on Netflix for a little while, probably, um, or or something like it, and just have some people who have discovered it and champion it and all of that. Um, and and I'm talking about independent films because you know there's just no marketing budget to make it a conversation um on its actual release so uh so it is really interesting to just see how uh specifically like resolution how it just seeped out there this tiny little movie um 
you know, as you say, you guys just reviewed it on your podcast just recently. That's wild, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. So it's, so to sum up, it's very hard to track which movie got us which job in after the fact, but, uh, but yeah, it's usually, Hey, one of them that came out in the last decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, so 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 episode three thirty nine was twenty eighteen. It was when the analyst came out. Oh, I'm sorry. And and I um you know I definitely under you know I understand what you're saying because I had not heard of resolution or spring at all, and I just came across the analyst on iTunes and I just saw that it was it was in the sci fi fantasy category and it had a ninety four percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes and I just got a bunch of friends together. You know, all my friends are all like science fiction writers and stuff, and we all watched it and we all loved it. And so then we went back and all, and watched the other two as well. But none of us had heard of it, um, heard of any of the, those movies until I just happened to come across it on iTunes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know it's we're really weird because someday we'll have a movie that everyone knows about the day it comes out because it had a twenty million dollars <laughs> because it has you know a twenty million dollar marketing budget and that's how you do that. Um, but that's really scary too because that's oh just gosh. like better be really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> better be awesome because it's the thing that kids are going to talk about in school on Monday. <laughs> uh, there's so many movies. It's actually kind of funny because you get a little bit of a pass as an indie filmmaker because if it doesn't make an impact, people are like, oh, that's what happens to indie films. You know, it only, it, it, you're only really as good as your best film in a way. And then if something just kind of comes and goes, it doesn't really hurt you. Um, you know, it's like, oh yeah, it, it it just happens. Uh, but if there's just a lot of marketing put behind a bad movie, that's, that's a frightening prospect. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how do you get invited to direct Twilight Zone? Does Jordan Peele like DM you on Twitter or something? Like, how does that work? I wish Jordan Peele DM'd us on Twitter. That's a, that'd be awesome. Um, the truth is it's funny. We're, we're not entirely sure how we got the job. Uh, we we did meet Jordan very briefly at a mutual friend's test screening. It was very brief. It was like, hey, Jordan, you, you should meet these guys that directed the it was, it was actually Mike Planning. Mike yeah, Planning it was Dr. It. Sleep. Uh, the director, Dr. Sleep, who's an old friend. Aaron used to be, uh, was a colorist on on Absentia, his first movie. Yeah. So known each other for years. And he brought in some friends to give some, just to like check out Dr. Sleep. And Jordan Peele was one of them. And so we met him briefly. And he did make some vague reference to like, oh, like, Maybe you could like direct an episode of something or something. And it wasn't this, but, um, but then we got a, like a phone call from our agent who was like, Hey, you're up for an episode of twilight zone. And then we had a meeting with, um, with a uh, monkey pop over, mm -hmm. over zoom. And, um, we felt like we totally bombed it. Yeah. Like it was <laughs> like, it was one of the times where I was like, we, that I, I've never felt more like we didn't get a job. And what's so funny by the way, is, you know, how, a, you know, a couple of minutes ago, we said, oh, yeah, we, you know, we've worked out these pitches on like pretty large properties and given it a shot. And, you know, it's not uncommon for Justin and I to walk out of that room and just be like, oh, man, we're moving to London or wherever it's going to be shooting, <laughs> like wherever it's shooting, where it's like, all right, we got that gig. This is great. And, you know, I mean, we have not yet gotten those gigs. Um, <laughs> and so it's really funny that the one of those pretty rare times that we're like, pretty sure we just bombed that for some reason, uh, we ended up getting it. So. Like, why did you think, could you say, even say well, why you thought you bombed it? Well, no, not really. I mean, well, well, no, I will say it's funny in retrospect. We, we talked about this a little bit, but it was funny because our, our pitch was like really ambitious. And we're just like, what if there was like a polar bear? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> what if they had like a pet, they had like a pet seal. Station's got a pet seal. And I look back on that now and I'm like, 
in TV, you don't get to add an animal character. Yeah, you idiot. Can, Why yeah. did you say that? They're like, well, the sets are already built. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, we, we were just swinging for it. And, um, and I think that was, they were, they were honestly, they were really, I think, into the enthusiasm and all the ideas. Although obviously, you know, I mean, TV is just a completely different beast where you are, you are, uh, they actually gave us a whole lot of freedom, but also in many ways, TV directors are guests on set, you know? Um, and, uh, so it was, I mean, no, I could not actually tell you why we thought we bombed it. It just was like a vibe that we totally misinterpreted. Hmm. I also saw that you've been producing movies. You produced After Midnight and She Dies Tomorrow. How did you get into producing movies? We, uh, we were at Fantastic Fest a few years ago and me and Justin and our producer, Dave, Dave Lawson, who's always worked on everything with us and, and is our secret weapon. Actually, he's just our weapon. We try to tell people he <laughs> exists. Um, he, uh, uh, he actually said over some beers, he's like, should we just make this a formal thing? You know I mean? I'm going to be producing movies, but obviously I don't really want to do it without you guys in any way. And, um, and so we just formed a, a little production company essentially to make uh, After Midnight, which at the time was titled, uh, the title was the, the words something else. If I say it was titled something else, it's very confusing, which is why hmm. we changed the title. Um, but the uh, uh, and so we for, we formalized it because we were pretty sure we knew how to get After Midnight made, and we did. We was too good to not get made, and uh, and so we thought, okay, if we're all going to make this together, let's just let's formalize this, and we will be producers at a company called Rustic Films, and um, and so we're always peeking around trying to find other things that are kind of in that vein where it's very character focused. Uh, very bold and is not expecting us to to pull in an enormous amount of money. Um, I'm sorry it, to to get it created um, because the more money that you attach to a project in, in general, just it adds complexities and, and removes nuance. And we want to uh, uh, we want to avoid that at least in the infancy of the company. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and with uh, with she dies tomorrow. Um, Amy's been a friend of ours since 2012. We met her at a film festival in Sweden in 2012. Um, obviously, really cool, really special person. And she wanted to make this small movie, and we wanted to help her. Uh, Aaron and I would often directed Twilight Zone. Dave Lawson helped her a yeah. lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we barely uh, helped. Um, but, but all that being said, on top of that, is uh, that Amy Simons doesn't need us or anyone else to make anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's yeah, the know, only it's reason we needed to be yeah. there or, or to have our names on it is that she doesn't have like eight arms and three bodies and stuff like that. Um, she she is a a very true independent, um, and our names being attached to that film is uh, amusing to us uh, <laughs> because we're extraordinarily proud of it. But uh, but we've had many conversations with Amy being like, we didn't, you know, we did a little bit, <laughs> but but really, it's kind of a formality of being on Rustic Films because Dave Lawson did a lot. Yeah. How about on After Midnight? How involved were you with that? Because Justin's actually in that in that one. Yeah, heavily, heavily involved. Um, all, all the crew is from my film school. And, you know, we both flew over there and helped get the set made and, and get all the all the gear and um, the locations and stuff. Dave, of course, was there every single day. Um, that was that was one where we can't say that we we you know, the, the directors are true auteurs and we are not going to. Um, impose our will on any movie we ever make really uh that's that's counter to the idea of what we want to do with this company uh, so they didn't need us to make the movie like 
better or anything like that. But in terms of like, were we on set sweating and picking up heavy stuff? Yeah, we were there. <laughs> I was about to make a really bad meta joke. There's like, Justin Benson's actually not in that movie. There was a whole meta thing. That's actually Aaron Moorhead playing Justin Benson, playing a cop in Florida. He's <laughs> it's that very good. impressive. I'm, it's, I'm, it's, yeah. He's that good. It's very impressive. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I just watched uh, After Midnight last night, and I really liked it. It was really, oh. uh, you know, not not expect not what I was expecting. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we're we're sent a whole bunch of scripts to uh, to consider for directing, and um, and this was one where just our friend Jeremy sent us his script, and uh, just as friends, because that's how you know indie filmmakers stick together. And it was one of those very rare times where this this. He, he actually made an extraordinarily emotional film uh, under the genre banner. And that's a really hard thing to do. A lot of every director says that they're character first, and it's very rare that they actually mean it. And Jeremy means it. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to, to actually go for it. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you're always uh, going to film festivals and all the indie directors in the space all kind of know each other. Is that is that accurate? We could always know more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Some, I, well, it's interesting, you know, some people you see over and over again, just by virtue of the fact that, Hey, maybe you had two movies come out around the same time or whatever. And then there's other people where it's like, I'm not even sure if they exist in real life. They may be, yeah, they may be like <laughs> AI false identities. I don't know. I don't know if what's like an example who have we never actually met. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't know. Okay. I've never, well, you've met him. I've never actually met uh, Robert David Mitchell. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. David Robert Mitchell. No, he uh, exists. I, I was zooming with him last night. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, it's it is kind of funny. I cannot actually say that we all know each other, and there's any kind of like a cadre of of indie filmmakers. But I will say, uh, a lot of our friends are indie filmmakers. Um, we do know some of them. So. And yes, we we love the festival experience uh, for sure. We we view that as besides just an enormous amount of life enjoyment and something that we would do, even if we weren't filmmakers, um, it, it's it, this, the things that we experience at film festivals always in weird ways filter into what our movies are about. Um, normally on a, on a thematic and, and character level, you know, we meet people that, that kind of inspire further conversations. And then, and then also uh, just on a business level is it's, it is, sort of part of the marketing of a film. I mean, I don't view, I don't wake up at a film festival and think time to go market our movie, but when you're an independent filmmaker, there's only so much noise that can get made about the movie that isn't made by you. And the rest of it has to be made by you. And you know, when you're at a film festival, that's just part of it. Do you ever uh, go to these things and run into uh, Alex Garland or Denis Villeneuve or uh, Christopher Nolan or anything like that? I think they only go to the film festivals that don't let us go. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's very genuinely. I mean, uh, we haven't had a lot of years at the Venice Film Festival <laughs> or camp. <laughs> but I hope someday that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> if we got into the same film festivals as those guys. Yeah. Well, so when uh, when we did the uh, our last episode um, reviewing your movies, I, I went back and listened to it. And one thing that really jumped out at me was I, I, at that time, I had listened to a lot of interviews with you and you had talked about all these sort of lucky breaks that you had. Um, so, for example, you met at this uh, when you were doing this internship and it was like Justin's last day It was Aaron's first day. So you could easily have, have never met. And then, um, if I have this right, resolution was actually pulled out of the garbage to be screened for the Tribeca Film Festival. 
And then also um, a studio bought a resolution, I guess, like the week that Justin was slated to go to med school. And so if that hadn't happened, then, you know, he might have just gone back to med school and you guys wouldn't be working together. Actually, I guess, is all all that correct? Do I have any of that wrong there? It's it's very close. I mean, not not even worth correcting, really. I mean, the it, the the pulled out of the garbage thing is a is was a metaphorical. It okay. was not <laughs> considered for rescreening, which is the the garbage of Tribeca, you know. But um, it was more like a recycling bin. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was basically you know passed on until somebody decided to to not. Um, but we actually thought it was literal until we got actually corrected, um, and then the. Um, uh, it, yeah, but yeah, that was basically it. Is when Resolution sold uh, a studio didn't buy it. It was it was a small distributor called Tribeca Film, but um, but that was it. Where we we decided, okay, this wasn't just a fluke. Let's actually try this again, and um, and yeah, I mean, it, and we do genuinely believe in the whole thing of like luck is preparedness meets opportunity, um, and, and just kind of like putting a whole bunch of the shotgun approach of filmmaking does actually kind of work in some ways. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it has been genuinely very fortunate. So, so once you get a few films under your belt, is it kind of more, you get into a groove and it's more smooth sailing or have you continued to, um, experience and maybe rely on those sorts of fortuitous, uh, occurrences? It's, it's more or less, no matter what happens no matter how well your last movie did it always basically feels like you're making your first movie it always just kind of feels like square one basically yeah where do we get financing how are we going to do this you know like how do we uh yeah it's um i mean even the thing that we're we're going to start working on on monday is i mean there's there's no crew you know it's just me and justin and dave um and uh uh it's actually it's a healthy mindset to feel like it's, you know, the cavalry isn't really coming, which is, you know, what Mark Duplass said in South by, um, we live and die by that. Uh, maybe someday the cavalry will show up and we'll just be like, all right, let's do this. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we just roll up our sleeves. So when you say there's no crew, you mean there's, it's just the three of you doing the movie or the crew has yet to be put in place. There is some crew working remotely. Oh, yes. COVID safe guidelines. Yeah, yeah. But there's on set, there's just the three of us. Wow. That's hardcore. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be something. It's really cool. Um, well, yeah, maybe let's get to that um, toward the end, the the new project. But I want to talk to you about Synchronic, which, um, you know, when people are listening to this, will have just come out. So kind of what was the journey to from sort of, I don't know, the initial idea to, to getting the movie made? We were, we were hard up for work, uh, making, (laughs) making a, um, it wasn't a music video. Exactly. It was basically, it was content for a YouTuber Mm -hmm. we were making and, um, we're having lunch during that, uh, being sort of, sort of unemployed, but like, but like, (laughs) yeah, taking a job because you you have to. (laughs) And, uh, and we were talking about like, oh, you know, um, essentially, you know, what if, what if there were a substance that made you experience time the way Einstein described it? That is to say that there's no distinction between past, present and future. And actually everything happened simultaneously. And time is more like a frozen river rather than a flowing river. And the substance, this drug would allow you to experience that. Um, 
And that was kind of the beginning of it. And then some weird conversations about synthetic drugs and how they work in the marketplace of that. The synthetic drugs being the, um, the, the synthetic analogs sold in like smoke shops and stuff like that, where it's like spice and K1 or fake cannabis. And they're actually more dangerous than actual cannabis. And bath salts was meant to be something like a, like an analog for this plant in East Africa called cat. But um, obviously everyone knows the lore around bath salts. A lot of it's untrue, but, but it's uh, certainly not good for you. Probably we just don't know. <laughs> they're not researched. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're literally called research chemicals. And <laughs> the, uh, and then I think after that, we were just th- saying, okay, well, if, if there's going to be this rash of, of this substance, um, you know, we need somebody with the ability to investigate it, but we didn't want our characters to be so powerful uh, to, we didn't want to enable them to be able to like kick down doors and flash a badge and point a gun in order to get what they need. You know, we thought like, okay, let's make it hard for our characters mm-hmm. to be able to investigate it while still like being able to go into other people's houses and, and experience things and all of that. And that's where we landed on first responders on paramedics. And, uh, and then I, I don't know where in the conversation also, I, I think we actually just had a really lowbrow initial thought, like, Hey, let's just shoot somewhere interesting that we want to live for a little while. Um, that 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 would look cool on camera, but then w- that was, I think, the very first conversation about it. And then we thought, well, hang on, if we're going to be doing this whole idea of time being presented as layers or as something that that is all existing simultaneously, let's make sure that it's a place that um, has a, a a very unique history, uh, so that it couldn't just be anywhere. And by the way, I mean, there's so many places with unique histories, but when people think of the difference between Chicago and Philadelphia, you can't, not everybody can immediately say what the differences are. Whereas New Orleans, there's just nothing like it. It is, it has this bizarre French and Spanish colonialism history, as well as of course, being very American and, you know, jazz and civil rights and like just an enormous history that is very, very, very specific to New Orleans. And it occupies this wonderful bit of real estate in uh, the American psyche. And so that's where we landed on New Orleans. And so I think that's kind of where we got all four of our things, where it was this time travel thing, this this uh, designer drug thing, the paramedics in New Orleans. And then the and then a big theme of the movie too was oh, yeah. was, uh, was just this idea that that um, like how how nostalgia can be toxic and how romanticizing the past can be sort of toxic and how uncomfortable it is that so many movies romanticize the Victorian era, 1950s America, all these things where it's like, no, I mean, it was probably good in some ways, but for like, a few people, for a few, just a few people, a very small subset of the population had it pretty good, but it sucked for everyone else. And without getting into specific time periods, it's like, it's less romantic and more like everyone had syphilis, you know? Yeah. yeah it, seems, <laughs> it seems like everyone smelled bad and was dirty almost all the time. Uh, and there were no antibiotics. No antibiotics. He was and, dying all the time. And, um, infant mortality was very high and, um, and, and, you know, the idea of nostalgia being a toxic drug, being up against this idea of someone taking a drug that takes you to the past was really salient to us. So given that it involved the history of New Orleans and paramedics and designer drugs and all this stuff, did you have to do a lot of research or did you already know kind of what you needed to know to, to write the script? Um, well, the, a lot of the specific locations in the script were chosen out of a memory of several vacations in New Orleans. And then 
And then without getting too deep into U.S. history and, and getting too esoteric that like, oh, you know, you could you could show something in the past and not have to like put a date up on screen and what the event is and all of that. Um, it was enough research to get that and to get that visually and to get that to connect with the locations that were in our heads from like going on vacations there. Um, so there was like a just trying to be I think there was actually like a, a conscious choice and just being careful to not get too deep into the detailed history of somewhere because um, it's going to be really hard for the audience to keep up with something really esoteric. Yeah. I mean, we, we read it. We definitely did do that research, but we, we did it so that we could be informed, but hopefully present, present that as something that doesn't feel esoteric. Um, and same thing with designer drugs. You know, I've never taken one, um, but I, uh, you know, we, we, dove all the way into like exactly how they work and how they're created, how they're manufactured, how they are distributed and all of that. But really that was just to make, make sure that this, uh, this constructed plot will work where it's just a limited thing that can't just exist everywhere in the United States. It's, there's a finite amount of it. And that was important to us um, because we don't want our film stakes to um, basically, we don't want it to, it's reach to extend its, grasp is that the phrase um uh where if the stakes become the entire united states or everybody in the world or anything like that um we've kind of lost our indie movie um <laughs> so we so we were able to keep it limited in that way yeah i mean this idea in the movie that time is in some way a function of your perception uh was reminding me of of books like time and again by jack finney and bedtime return by richard matheson that was made into the movie somewhere in time with christopher reeves i was just curious were those influences on you at all or or anything else did that did any other science fiction influence that that idea um it's probably more more alan moore um uh he has a a novel called jerusalem that deals a lot with it uh and obviously dr manhattan is probably the most famous character who, who dramatizes this in Watchmen, right? Um, but then beyond the Alan Moore of it, uh, I was I was pre-med, and when you're pre-med, you have to take a... Well, I did. I, I had to take a bunch of calculus-based physics, and there's only like three things I remember from those classes, and it's like it's like general relativity and how Einstein viewed time, and uh, there's one more I can't remember. Right? See, two, now I'm down to two. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in prep for it, you know, we, we, you crack on the really fun podcasts. Uh, I know I, I reread uh, A Brief History of Time just to see if there's anything interesting about it. But there's plenty interesting about it, by the way, although it, it mostly focuses on black holes. But it's, uh, you know, I mean, that, that's written for people like myself who don't understand any kind of actual physics, you know, like, like, like any textbooks. It was written for the layman. Um, so, you know, there was that kind of research, but it's really just to get your, again, just to get your head in it um, more so than to, uh, than to get into the minutia, like in the script. Yeah. It, it was funny when we were basically completely done with the movie. Uh, I read uh, the fabric of the cosmos by Brian green, and he has several chapters dealing with the physics of the movie and he described it so much better than we did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we wish we could have stolen from him while we were shooting. We would have done that. So, yeah. Well, the movie, or the movie, it has this real like sense of dread that, for me, that pervades the whole thing. And um, a lot of the cinematography is really interesting. I mean, there's a shot. You're sort of, uh, I guess, kind of looking at 
um, roofs of houses from above, and then the camera kind of like goes up and or kind of it sort of pans over the city so that the city skyline is is inverted, and then keeps going to look at the night sky. And I was just curious how um, like how and when do you decide to to put in some sort of you know unusual shot like that? Uh, almost all of it is planned to a T. Uh, we we spend an enormous amount of time uh, preparing, and the shot listing process is is weeks long. Um, so, for example, that shot, I believe, um, I believe that was actually just in the shot list. Yeah. Uh, we knew that we needed to pan all the way up to the sky, and we we kind of plan out our transitions and all of that. Um, I, when we're shot listing, a lot of the time we we start with the basics, you know, of like what do we need to get the scene. And we try to make it the absolute bare minimum um, so we can minimize cuts. So we, because we don't, we try not to make these really fast paced pulse pounding moments out of independent movie type emotions. And, uh, um, and so it, and then we, we then say, okay, we've got our, we've got the core of the scene. Um, what are we missing? And, and what is it that, that can be thematically relevant and interesting? And that's normally when shots like you're talking about pop in. Um, so we'll we'll say something, you know, in the script, it'll say he looks up to the stars and then we just we're sitting around a kitchen table saying, what does that look like on on camera? And often it's something like like what you just described. Um, actually, here's an interesting one. Um, there's a really long uh, uh, single take in the film. There's actually quite a few, but um, but one that's pretty noticeable near the very beginning of the film. And that we've had scripted to or shot listed to be something like 50 setups. Yeah. Um, and by, by this, but at that time in shooting, we were so done with doing so many setups a day. It was a rush schedule. We didn't have many days, still a very low budget movie. And, um, and our first AD was like, Hey, this is another day. That's be really tricky with the amount of setups you have in the shot list. And he said half jokingly, he said in jest, what if you just made it a winner? And then, uh, Aaron and I looked at each other, like the, 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 you know, like, you're right. It should be a one. It's got to be a one. That, that, <laughs> night, that, that, that night, we like basically threw away the original version of that that shot and choreographed a one on our iPhones and the, and several of the crew members that were staying with us in the shotgun house. Yeah, and that so that was about two weeks before we actually shot that shot because we still mm-hmm. needed to get everybody up to speed and and all of that. But uh, it was a uh, it, and and it's funny because besides the fact that you know, we, as Justin says, we were really done with like divvying up a whole bunch of little individual moments into cuts. Um, it was also something that just felt way more resonant with how the movie actually is. You know, if we're talking about time, um, there's, there is something to something happening in real time as we're meeting our characters. There's a, there's a dread, as you just mentioned to that shot, uh, that wouldn't really exist if there were just a ton of cuts all over that scene. Um, you feel like you're you're omnisciently floating around with our characters, and it gives you this kind of ethereal sense. And there's a whole bunch of more reasons that we can go into for why that actually is. And then also, it just really helped the schedule. You know? <laughs> well, well, yeah. I, I actually, I would be curious because you you did intend for this sense of dread to pervade the whole movie, and then how do you um, uh, uh, accomplish that effect? I mean, there's so many different ways, not that we're the best at it. Now, actually, something that we should be said is, is that we found in filmmaking is that the hardest thing to do is to actually scare people, um, not and not just turn up the volume and make a quick 
edit and have something move fast, a, a stinger jump scare, basically. Those are hard to do too. But I mean, to actually frighten someone, to get in under their skin, to make them feel a sense of dread, to make them feel unease. It's the hardest thing to do. Um, it feels like if you attempt jokes enough, you'll hit a few. Mm-hmm. It feels like if you, if you, if you hit those dramatic moments, uh, you'll, 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 prob- you'll probably hit a few, but you can totally whiff on scaring people. Um, and the, the things that we've worked on and over a bunch of our movies is um, one is, is that actual fear is slow and creeping. So that's camera moves. Yeah. General, general idea, camera moves, slow and creeping. Um, yeah, it's actually it's, funny because we're on our Twilight Zone episode, we we're talking to our DP, you know, as we were doing this push in, you know, as Joel McHale was realizing that someone was dead. And, uh, and the phrase is funny where it's uh, slow is scary, fast is fun. And it's really simple. But it's true, you know, that a fast push-in says Indiana Jones adventure. <laughs> yeah. A slow push-in says dawning realization dread. Yeah. You know? um, sparse dialogue is scary. Um, people talking nonstop, not scary. Yeah. Just saying nothing that relates like it's conversational. It can look natural, but it's not. For some reason, when you look at it in the edit, it's like, oh, my God, you just have to start cutting out every word you can to get it to feel, again, a sense of dread, a sense of unease. Um the score, I yeah. but both being there and when it's not there, um, we've done, you know, we've, we've recut this film uh, and some of it was just to, to make the score more minimalist, um, you know, but it's funny where it's like a loud score, unless it's exactly a certain track. And this is like a track that comes out once every two years, you know, the, the Sicario famous score, yeah. or the witch has that one, that one uh, building voices, all of that. Like once every two years, there's like a track that is inherently scary on its own. And, uh, and I think we have one or two of those in synchronic with Jimmy. Um, and, but it's, it, you have to like pick your battles, you know, because, because if it's always going, anyone will tell you, uh, any composer will tell you if it's always going, you will lose it. You know, it's just, yeah, yeah. it's, uh, it's, uh, crisp, quiet, minimalist sound design, almost always scarier than scary score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we weirdest thing yeah um but it's tough though because it gets you have to it's it's weird in the edit to know when to pull know when to quiet the score and know when not to because you could also love a piece of score like i want the score from the original suspiria just to play all the time everywhere but you know what it's i don't think anyone's gonna make the argument that if you blast that score for 90 minutes it's gonna be scary yeah you just know when to use it you know what's weird (laughs) though is that does blast all through suspiria and it's it's like all awesome yeah it's awesome yeah One thing I, I wanted to ask you about is, you know, when I went back and listened to our review of the earlier movies, you know, we had two women on the panel and they talked a lot about how um, how how sort of moving they found it, that your movies have these male friendships where the men um, you know, care about each other and um, take care of each other. And they felt like that was sort of rare in, in Hollywood movies. And I was just curious if you hear that a lot from women that they um, you know, connect with your movies, uh, especially. No, I mean, to be honest, if anything, I think we feel a little self-conscious that it's like a, here's a good way to put it. We've got like 20 things we'd like to make someday. And it just so happens that the only ones that have been greenlit have been the ones that featured uh, oftentimes male dynamic relationships. And that's something we're self-aware about and we wish it wasn't the case, but we're happy that people at least see those relationships as being unique. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's really just been a, Again, there's a lot of projects, and for whatever reason, those are the ones I went forward with, the ones featuring uh, two male leads. But that does feel really good that at least people look at that and they go like, well, they're 
at least they're they're in execution there's something different about it and and that it feels um like it's thoughtful and there's heart there and they're human beings um and they're not just um uh archetypes saying uh like plot hyper masculine oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well that, that's kind of that's part of our our working theory on on filmmaking too is um you know, uh, some of the most exciting times for us when we're on set is when our characters just get to talk to each other about something that isn't specifically in the log line of the movie. And you will be shocked at how rare that is because this, by the way, the things they talk about inform the later plot and inform their character and push the movie along. It just doesn't in that exact moment, they're not discussing about what to do about a time travel pill. That's all it is, you know? And there's, there's kind of a, a, common wisdom in writing that that if the dialogue isn't pushing that along uh pushing along this idea of like what to do about the missing daughter and the time travel pill if it's not pushing that along then you might as well cut it but if you cut it you get something soulless and you don't understand these people because you can only express yourself so much through action um and there is also the our primary means of expressing ourselves as humans through the way that we communicate with others and so um, you know, it's not that it's a scene that, that you can cut it and still understand it. That's possible sometimes. Not That's not every scene in the movie, but you could maybe trim down some scenes in Synchronic and still understand Synchronic, but you'll not feel the movie at all. Um, and that's a problem. Uh, and so that's that's kind of all of our, always our aim, uh, where we can actually just slow down and take some time and, and make sure that we know these people and understand their decisions because there's also kind of a math problem you're doing of, um, you know, the, the, the shorter your movie is, the, the more your characters must become archetypes so that they are understood without having to explain it. But if they're archetypes, then they are barely characters. So earlier when you were talking about this sort of idea of toxic, the toxicity of nostalgia, it was making me think of, um, I guess it was a few years ago now, I interviewed Steven Pinker and he had a book that came out called Enlightenment Now. Um, and he has, he, he talks about this idea that, um, you know, by, by virtually any measurable metric, things have gotten better and better and better over the last thousand years, you know, like infant mortality, like and anything like that, that you could measure, anything bad has dropped and anything good has has climbed. And yet people still have this idea that, people always think that they're living in the worst possible times and the world's about to end. And uh, it's just, you know, in his, his telling it at any rate, completely at odds with the sort of measurable realities. And I was just curious if, if you had followed that argument at all, or is that, um, you know, tie into what your, uh, kind of the theme of the movie. Yeah. Uh, when we wrote it, um, that was definitely a lot of the conversations about the fact that, um, really, it, it, it was more of this, uh, I suppose, Buddhist mindset of, of um, appreciation for the present as opposed to chasing something that you'll never get back uh, or maybe you never had in the first place. Because obviously, when I say nostalgia is a drug, like we all take it. I take it, too. You know, of course, uh, we just want to recognize that failing, um, you know, on, on just a personal level. Uh, it's a, right now at this exact moment. So, so, so the, the time period he's referring to is 2015. Yeah. Um, so the script is written that the first draft is 2015 and then it, obviously it goes through a billion drafts and 
eventually we shot it in 2018. Yeah. Um, but you know, 2015, 2018, 2020, all very, very different times. And, uh, I, I, I the, the book you're talking about, obviously we've had people, uh, reference this book in, in relation to the movie and, um, I haven't read it myself. I, I, I don't know about the idea of quantifying quality of life of now versus, you know, a century ago, 200 years ago, paleo times, whatever. Um, it's no doubt that a lot of things have gotten better. I don't want to live in a world without antibiotics. I mean, in some ways things have gotten better, but there's also no doubt there's a lot of people who are obviously struggling profoundly. Yeah. So, you know, it's, there's always a hesitation to, it's hard to say like, cheer up, infomortality's yeah. down, you know, <laughs> yeah. when, when it's just like, because we do have real problems and they do need to be dealt with, but it's not that I want to rewind the clock to deal with them uh, at all. Yeah. Uh, because I do think actually, if you look back, that's, that is often the source of where these problems, these worldwide ailments are. I mean, climate change is a great example. Where do you rewind to? Just, do you just tell the industrial revolution not to happen? Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So in, in, uh, in, in America, even before, you know, before there were hats that said, make America great again, which is nostalgia, right? Make America great again. That time that was great in the past before these hats existed. There was always that idea in America, this thing of like, man, if we just get like the 1950s, if we just get back to that, and it's like, and you see it in our entertainment or media. When you look at things like Back to the Future, it's like, it's an amazing movie. It does really gloss up the 1950s. Yeah. And it, it's, it's something that's been running through our media and our culture for a long time. And it's like, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it, these were discussions we had in early in the development of the script of Synchronic, where it was like, are we comfortable with this? Yeah. And it's funny because it's also, by the way, totally fine in any individual product to gloss up something or romanticize it. It's a choice. It's not a, it's not a, uh, you know, a moral failing of any individual product. But what we wanted to do was examine the other side of that. That's really, that's really what it was where we thought, okay, what if these things were hell? Uh, because they were hell for a lot of people. Um, and I think a lot of people enjoy the idea of like, oh, dressing up in nice looking clothing, you know, from a long time ago and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and a, a simple life or something like that, a simple agrarian life, for example. Um, but, uh, but it's rare that we see the past as an actual antagonist. And for a lot of people, it probably was. It's funny when you allude to, you know, COVID and, you know, that the pandemic being just objectively bad. Uh, you know, compared to say a couple of years ago. And, um, it is funny, you know, if you go and watch movies, I guess, I guess still, like if you go and watch a movie now, you, there might be some character who's miserable and feeling sorry for themselves and they're drinking, drinking at the bar surrounded by people. And you're kind of like, you know, what does this person have to complain about? They can actually go out to a bar and just get drunk with a bunch of other people, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, it is just kind of funny that. I mean, that, that is that is, the COVID is definitely, you know, that's not your imagination. It is, is actually, you know, things are definitely worse now in, in, in that way than than they were a few years ago. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And also, you just made me realize every time I'm watching a scene like in the Victorian era and everyone's in like a cozy pub having some some brews together that like half those people could have smallpox. Yeah. <laughs> half those people are probably just finished up their 18 hour day in the field. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, though, by the way, the, the, something that's actually worth mentioning, uh, though, is there is no, 
you know, hey, the past is bad and the present is good. Uh, there, there is no moral judgment that can be made in any individual film. And it's actually not one that we make on our own. Um, it's an exploration. You know, every film should be just an exploration of it. And we're exploring this idea that, you know, time travel might actually not be wish fulfillment. Um, but, uh, but it's just one of many, many different ideas of the complexity of the human experience. And in many ways, there's a way you could take that pill and the experience would be awesome. I mean, I mean, could you talk about how COVID has, uh, what impact it's had on you? Because I, I saw your, um, on Twitter, you, you were sort of telling people, um, we can't encourage you to go see the movie in theaters right now. Like we wouldn't do that. Yeah. I mean, well, we've, you know, we've been quarantined together since the beginning and luckily we were at a phase professionally where we were developing a lot of stuff. It was a lot of meetings that could just happen over Zoom. Uh, a lot of it was writing. A lot of it was pitching and making pitches that could be pitched over Zoom. Um, so we can't say that, you know, we, we can say this. We can say we've been extraordinarily lucky. Yeah. And have a huge amount of empathy for people who weren't. And yeah. uh, we have a lot of friends who um, got their movie shoot canceled. And that's the, still the least of what a lot of people are experiencing, you know, a lot of people are experiencing this thing ravaging their entire families. And um, we have been lucky enough that our quarantine situation and just the random timing of how our career has ebbs and flows of, of work. Um, and it's just been, um, uh, we've been fortunate. So you haven't um, gone to any events or anything? Because um, on Twitter... Uh, you tweeted about this um, Beyond Fest 2020 Fuck COVID edition. It wasn't clear to me whether that was a an in-person thing you were going to or an online thing or what. It's actually uh, Beyond Fest is uh, an amazing film festival here in Los Angeles. They're relatively young and it's so amazing what they've done in the few amount of years they've been going on. Um, and for this edition this year, they've switched to drive-ins. Yeah. And, uh, and the people going to see our movie and drive-ins, we just don't see any any problem with that at all. Well, yeah, because I actually you you said in the um in this uh, tweet you said uh, we are very much looking forward to attending the drive-in theaters showing the film during its initial October release. So, could you talk about that? Like, how many drive-in theaters are you planning to <laughs> drive to? We we actually. Uh, Actually, that's funny. That's funny. Um, we, we would love to drive to drive in to drive in across America and uh, <laughs> wave at people through the window. That sounds actually amazing. Um, but uh, we're going to be shooting, yeah, during the the release. So no, no drive in drive ins for well, you. Yeah, we'll probably be able to attend a local screening, you know, here in LA, where I believe there's two or three drive ins. Um, cause we do want to see what it looks like, but the thing is, it's funny about the drive-in experience is, um, there's no way to be in person. Like you can't, you can't even drive. Most of them don't even allow you to like stand on top of your car and address the audience or anything like that. So being there just means that you are in your own car watching the movie you've seen a billion times. <laughs> um, so that's the thing is we're going to go because it's our premiere, but we're, but there's no, um, there's no function to actually being in person at a drive-in because there's no in-person uh, aspect to it for like, like there's no in-person Q and a. However, though, for, um, for she dies tomorrow, uh, which had a release during COVID at the drive-ins, um, they were able to arrange this really interesting live zoom 
that the cast and crew was able to do either from their cars or wherever they were in the world. Um, and I, that actually was as technologically challenging as you would think that was. It was awesome. Uh, and so we do hope to be able to do that, to be able to still have some level of interaction at actual drive-in screenings. Yeah. See, now I'm imagining some sort of like science fiction scenario where you go to events and everyone's in their car and then there's like a big monitor on, on, the, on the hood of your car and then you can like <laughs> pipe audio into the car, whoever your whatever car you, you pull up next to and stuff like that. <laughs> I, I wish that there was like some way to, to make it uh, even more communal, but actually we've, we've gone to a few drive-ins um, and they are a, a pretty wonderful experience. They're very different than the indoor theater experience, um, but they're something that basically, here's a way to put it, is when all this ends or when it returns to something as close to normal as we'll get back, um, I'll still be going to the drive-in. Like I kind of got to rediscover something that I didn't know I'd lost. Well, so let's come back to, so you mentioned you're on Monday, you're starting shooting a new movie. Is there anything you can say about that? Uh, it's more just a project than it is a new movie, uh, at least at the moment. But um, uh, we're, we're probably not going to get into plot details, if that's okay. But because we just, we haven't really even learned how to talk about it yet. Um, but uh, But what we do know is it's three people are going to quarantine together. And uh, we, you know, we, we cobbled together um you know some gear uh we've been working on a script that we honestly even if lockdowns didn't exist we would have made this movie anyways so it's not going to feel like this super self-contained um uh you know quarantine movie uh although i do hope that's part of the narrative uh because it's interesting but it is a uh um we, we found ways to make it not feel like a teeny teeny tiny movie while still being able to make it teeny 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 tiny yeah but it's so it's an it's an original idea something you wrote together or yeah 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 um uh it would be it would be really interesting though if we just like went off and like adapted like a batman graphic shooting <laughs> 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 just the three of us it'd be like a, yeah, and just finish it and shoot off your lawyer. Here you go. Yeah, attack. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, yeah, it's just something that we, we sat down and came up with because, um, you know, when the industry started releasing the new protocols for being on set, we realized that uh, that really, really big movies can kind of handle it as a percentage of their bottom, bottom line. Uh, but on the kind of level of independent films that we've made in the past, it would be such a large percentage of the budget without making the movie more valuable in any weird way um, that the movie would be kind of impossible to finance. Uh, this could change as, as people figure out new and clever ways of doing it. But we thought, okay, since there's no middle anymore, there's either huge or nothing. Let's figure out the nothing. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good, uh, I like that philosophy. Well, cause it makes me think of um, this tweet I came across uh, where, where Justin says, I love writing and have done it almost every day for the last 22 years. I've never been hired for a writing gig and almost never approached, but I'm headed into indie film number five while writing the next couple. Don't give up. Find ways around a system that often doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, is there anything you can add to that? I think that's really well put. But No, I mean, it holds true. I mean, maybe someday we'll get a a writing job, but it is it is interesting. It's like, I feel bad sometimes when young filmmakers come to me and like want like advice on a writing career or something. And it's just like, Oh, I 
literally don't have one. <laughs> literally don't have one. So I'm sorry. And it's I, like, I, unless I, you're going to write stuff that you're going to create your own. Yeah. On your own. Yeah. Um, it is, it is extraordinarily rare that, uh, any opportunity like that comes our way. Uh, and you know, we, we've been knocking, but, and we, we just keep knocking on the door and eventually, you know, we're going to answer the door. I hope. <laughs> so, so if you've been writing every day for 22 years, do you have a lot of un, like, what's the quantity of unproduced screenplays or treatments or majority. whatever that you have? The vast majority. Yeah. Are we, talk, <laughs> like, are we talking like I, 25, 50? Percent? No. Oh, like oh, how many oh, scripts? Oh, how many, how many, okay. I would say like scripts, let's just call stories. So in terms of like, Short stories, oh, stories. Oh not, my God! Short stories, novels, <laughs> treatments, um, scripts, even to all these things. I mean, probably. Oh gosh. Um, if I okay, if I if I subtract stuff that would just never get made because I wrote it between the ages of eighteen and late twenties at some point, <laughs> things that no one should ever see, like thirty or something. No, nah, man, I think more is like more. hundreds. Hundreds. <laughs> oh, no, I'm serious, <laughs> because, because think about think about how often you and I sit down and just bang out an idea. You know, sure. like like it was, yeah. like just like remember the 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 Butch Cassidy idea? Oh, that was a good. Like one. that was a good one. <laughs> you know, like that's like no, I think I think like yes, when you talk about like actual scripts, they're like okay, this is a thing that's designed to be consumed. Yeah, maybe maybe thirty. Yeah. But but when it comes to just like I I mean we're in hundreds you know I think so I don't I don't know if I'm just ex- exaggerating I hope it doesn't sound like that but yeah yeah I would say we we work on something that feels completely new every week and we've been working together ten years so yeah it's probably I mean to be honest it's probably just good that for anyone to have the expectation that for like every hundred things you write or talk about like maybe one will get made and it'll definitely get made if you choose to make it and write it so that you can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and you'll um, and you'll probably write like hundreds of things before that first thing out of out of up. So it's like you do the first two hundred, and then <laughs> in the next hundred, one of those. Yeah, if you can make it yourself, <laughs> you'll do it. <laughs> so did did you say that you've written short stories, is, as in like short stories that might appear in a magazine or anthology or something? Oh, they're short stories. I doubt anyone would take them for like a magazine or anthology or anything. It's not. <laughs> it's, I also wrote. Uh, Wrote a whole wrote a whole book uh, like a not like a, a novel. There's like a first draft of it and a bunch of stuff like that. I used to when I was a teenager and in college, I did more of my like short story stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I, and just after college, a few years after college, I wrote a lot of short stories. Yeah, um, but I, I don't think anyone would publish them. They're probably not very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, also, uh, I just listened to an interview where Aaron was talking about rando knots. And that was a yeah. new one to me. I'm actually so writing about random knots right now. Oh, cool. Well, so could uh, you just, first of all, just explain what random knots are? Yes, yes. When I first heard of them, they were underground. And I think they're going to be this kind of a, I think it's going to become a, a cultural thing, you know, and, and it won't be quite so cool and, and fun. But so, you know, right now there's this idea that almost everything that we do is within some kind of a deterministic tunnel. So everything, if you could... If you had the, I believe, charge and velocity and direction of every particle, um, you could predict the future and the past. There's just no, basically the idea that there's no free will. It's the whole concept behind devs, um, but also yeah. something that's been discussed since forever. Um, but randonauts is an actual thing where what they do is uh, they, they use a random number generator. And technically, for the most part, random number generators aren't technically random. 
they come from a computer and they're they're very complicated how they arrive at them, but still you can find how they derived that randomness. But they, there is a way to get actual randomness, which is they measure quantum fields because quantum fields are, are actually random. And so they're able to take these measurements and, and get actually random numbers that truly cannot be predicted in the universe. Um, they use those numbers and they turn them into coordinates and they go to those coordinates, no matter how hard they are to get there. Um, and in doing so, they have broken out of their deterministic tunnel because there was no world in which they would have gone to that place uh, if they had not followed those numbers. And those numbers were actually random. And so they go there and they just observe and and they say often very, and that's kind of where it gets a little bit um, woo-woo, I would say, where they, they, they experience synchronicities and look for coincidences and they take a lot of meaning over the things that they observe right there. Uh, that's where like the culture of randonauts takes over. But, uh, but the general idea of going somewhere that is definitely outside of your deterministic tunnel, no matter what, just to see what happens, because you've never done it before, as far as you know, is very cool. So have you thought about doing that yourself? I have done it. Uh, and it's nothing happened. <laughs> there's just an app on the phone, literally just press a button and there's a place nearby and just like walk to the corner. <laughs> <laughs> but you said you're writing a script about that? Uh, just a, a a book, just for fun. Um, but there, there's one of the characters has that quality, uh, ha, does that as, as part of an existential crisis that they're experiencing, like a like a novel kind of book. Uh, hopefully, I I see the the thing is is Justin is a lot more uh, dedicated when it comes to writing. I write purely for fun, and so it feels even weird for me to talk about it. But um, but. Yes, like the this is a concept that is about fifty, sixty thousand words long, um, and has a completely different idea than randonauts in it. But it's but it's one of my favorite new weird ideas to uncover. So I was like, let me just see how where that goes. Yeah, when you mentioned devs, I mean, I was going to ask you if you'd seen that because that was, I thought, the most um, you know sort of best dramatization of determinism I'd ever seen in science fiction, and just the the scene where they're uh, watching themselves on the screen one second into the future. It's just one yeah. of the scariest things I ever ever saw. Yeah, was, Alex Garland is yeah. a master. Yeah, the uh, the score also is in that show is awesome. The production yeah. design is awesome, so good. Yeah, uh, yeah, Alex so, Garland is one of our one of our greats. Pretty incredible. I, I remember I remember reading The Beach when I was in college, and uh, as you do in your early twenties, <laughs> uh, I, I remember just being like so blown away by that book, and then. Um, and then seeing 28 days later and just being like, and just being like, Oh wow. Like he's also like an amazing screenwriter. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, and then obviously also obviously not an amazing director. Yeah. He's super cool too. You know, I, I, he was one of the few people I interviewed face to face for this podcast and wow. that, was, that was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a genius. Yeah. All right. So we're, uh, unfortunately we're pretty much out of time. Do you have any, just any other final thoughts or any other projects or anything you want to let people know about? I mean, no, I don't think so. But if anyone wants to ask us about stuff, they can, we're, we're active on Twitter. Yeah. If, if anyone else has questions for us, I'm at Justin H. Benson. And I'm at Aaron Moorhead. Um, good luck spelling my name right the first time. But, you know, <laughs> we'll get it. Well, there's no E in the middle, you, you said, right? Yes. That's yeah, the key. That's correct. Yeah. I, I, I stopped getting offended at even longtime friends don't know how to spell it. 
uh, or, or they, they'll misspell it, I should say. Um, and I stopped getting offended at that when, when I turned about six years old, because I feel like at a certain <laughs> point, my parents are going to like misspell it and I'll still be like, whatever guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. Yeah. So let's sort of wrap things up there. But, um, you know, I'm so glad I came across the endless, um, you know, I just, I just love this kind of intelligent, serious, uh, science fiction movies and there's just definitely not enough of them. Um, so it's just always great to come across stuff like this. And so everyone should definitely check out your new movie, Synchronic. It's out now. And so we've been speaking with Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank hey. you. Thanks for having us. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.